one interview with Francis Burke on the 18th of January 2006 at his home. I was put that there. Yep. Oh, make sure it's recorded. Or else we're in trouble. Sorry. Just killed a spider. Yeah, my wife would be it starts with <laughs> Thank you for your time. Pleasure. I always start off by asking, can you please uh, tell me your date of birth and when you and where you were born? Uh, I'm Francis William Burke. I was born on the 2nd of the 4th, 1947, at Bethlehem Hospital in Caulfield. So, your father is Frank? Correct. And you're Francis? I am. Was there a deliberate attempt to call you Francis so there wasn't any confusion? Uh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, definitely. My father, uh, my grandfather, my father's father is Francis William Burke as well, and he was at the time of my birth anyway. Uh, and so uh, he was F.W. Burke, my father was F.M. Burke, and I'm F.W. Burke, and so I always got called Francis because it was old Frank, young Frank, and now uh, Francis, so that's, that's the way it all evolved, which is, was well, nice, I suppose, in some respects, that you pass on a name from one mm. generation to the next, but not very practicable. So that, anyway, that, that's the genesis of why I was called Francis. Uh, if you can think back, do you actually recall any early childhood football memories? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, it was footy in the winter and cricket in the summer. Yeah. But uh, I didn't actually start playing uh, competitively, competitively till I was perhaps 13 or 14, um, because in those days there just wasn't the competitions around uh, for... Um, lads, particularly in the country, to be involved with. But there was plenty of schoolyard stuff and playtime stuff and all that. But uh, I actually started playing for Nathalia Thirds, which at the time was an under-16 comp. As a, as how, as as a 12 or 13-year-old, with game games here and there, until I gradually got older and stronger and, and able to compete more on, on my own terms. But, yeah, I know. Uh, I can remember um, uh, the first footy and the first... Set of footy boots, and uh, which were which weren't really footy boots. They were uh, my school boots with leather soles, and my father um, tacked in the knock-in stops, which yeah. were uh, clever in those days. And uh, I remember we were playing <coughs> an inter-school <coughs> game against Newmerka State School versus Nathalia State School, and on the day that uh, we played the match, uh, my father sent me off to school with these knocking stops into my normal boots and I was able to wear my best shoes to school uh, because I could save then the other uh, pair I had which were the boots with the stops in for the footy match. And I came home, anyway, my father ripped the stops out and the next day I went back to school back in my old uh, normal boots again. <laughs> and you lived on a farm? Yeah, yeah. I did. Yes, we did. We, I grew up on a, on a farm in Nathalia, 150 miles north of Melbourne. And... Uh, uh, yeah, I was the eldest of seven children, and uh, right. so uh, you know, pretty normal sort of childhood. I would have thought. Rode to school, rode the bike three miles to the school bus each morning when I was a youngster, and came home the same way. Yeah, so uh, yeah, pretty normal. And then, then help out on the farm when you came home. Uh, oh yes, well we had cows to milk and things yeah. like that. You know, chores, calves to feed, and. Things to do. Was there anyone else in the Burke family uh, who was interested in football? 
Uh, all our family was interested yeah. in footy. Uh, my, I had three younger brothers, and they all played footy right. uh, to certain levels. Uh, none of them really progressed to the point where they played or made a serious effort to play senior footy uh, in a men's competition, but they played in different amounts at uh, different times. Right. And uh, my next eldest brother played you know, here and there, and, uh, and my two younger brothers, who were much younger than me, played uh, often on Xavier and, and at uh, schools, at uh, old Zabs and things like that. I think for a short time after I left school, but didn't really pursue it with any great endeavour. Did, did you actually, did, did you and your brother play in a team often, or? No, no, like, did you no we never played together. Right, okay. No, no, never, never. Because my, my next younger brother was six younger than me, six years younger than my next uh, brothers were another six years younger again, you know, so the gap was just too big, yeah. you know. So by the time they were starting to play yeah. reasonable footy, I was playing in Melbourne, basically. And then in your childhood, you had a medical condition that afflicted you possibly playing football, is that right? Well, so I'm told. I, I mean, I was t I was diagnosed with uh, a symptom called aortic stenosis, which I've only over the last few years learned the term. Right. But it, it was broadly speaking a slight narrowing of the aortic valve, which is the main valve immediately just outside my heart. And I was told it was first diagnosed uh, when it was picked up as a murmur by our doctor at Nathalia, who. Um, at the time was quite concerned and so as a reaction to that uh, he said I shouldn't do anything uh, that was physically uh, heavy uh, and that included playing sport uh, till they had time to examine it and monitor it so here I was feeling completely normal all of a sudden some bloke says uh, I don't think you should play sport and then my mother said well that's it you're not playing sport so and then, of course, uh, um, after a while, when I, when I, my mother brought me down to Melbourne to see a fellow called Sir Clive Fitz, who at the time was one of the leading heart people in Melbourne, he said, well, look, I don't think there's any problems and I can't see why you can't lead a normal life. And we've had a look at your electrocardiogram now again. So uh, there hasn't been any deterioration since we've been looking at it. So... Uh, Go for it. So I went for it, you know, and all, all the time I felt um, it was a waste of time, you know, and I, I haven't felt any side effects of it uh, that I know of, anyhow, <laughs> <laughs> ever. And so, uh, but nevertheless, uh, the insurance company used it as a reason to loan the premiums, and uh, there was some. Ramification like that. Every five or six years, I suppose, or when I think when I go and see a bloke, then he looks at it and he says, "Oh, well, nothing's changed." Um, but as you get older, just monitor it more regularly because it could get worse. Blah 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 blah. But at the time, um, it was something that the media picked up on through my father's association uh, of Jack Dyer and Brian Hanson, and of course the. They loved it and became uh, a, a bit of a, uh, a point of difference from 
something else and uh, has it, has a it bit been, of an embarrassment for me. Yeah. Has it been exaggerated over the years, Pat? Um, or been made more? Well, I think, uh, yeah, I think it's been exaggerated, yeah. but uh, I think that uh, it's been taken uh, out of context too in terms of its seriousness and just, it's been beat up a little bit, I think. So you're playing for Nathalia, mm-hmm. and who were there um, apart from their arch rivals? Who, who did you play against? What were the other teams? Yamurka. Yeah. was the traditional yeah. arch rival because it was a neighbouring town, 20 miles away. It was always even in my father's time. Yeah. My father grew up on his, on his father's farm and played for Nathalia uh, immediately after he left school. So um, that was well and truly ingrained, but. Uh, I must say that, look, I played for Nathalia Thirds and then went to Suction for two years, so I played there. Then I came back to play with Nathalia when I left school and I kicked off from the seniors, from going back from Assumption straight back into Nathalia Seniors and basically played there for three years and then went to Melbourne. And so uh, during the... Uh, the three years that I played for Nathalia, I worked for my father's farm, but I continued to work for my father's farm for a further three years and travelled backwards and forwards from the farm to play with Richmond. And so um, I formed during that six-year time that I was actually in the district of Nathalia as an adult uh, lifelong friendships and associations, which I'm very grateful and thankful for now because if I was growing up in these times I would have probably been shunted across to the Murray Bush range who train at Shepparton on one night of the week which is half three quarters an hour's drive and the other night is Wangratta which is an hour and a half drive or an hour and a quarter's drive um, and I would have missed all that I think and so um, uh, at the time that, that, that's what I did and uh, I found it very hard playing for Nathalia because I was a boy playing against men. And I was playing key position. What position? Full forward, centre half forward. And uh, I was 17, 18 and 19. Uh, and so that in a way was a... Uh, helped, I think, my development in a way because uh, I didn't get things my own way. I didn't dominate the competition at all. You know, I had to really, really battle and battle and battle to get a kick. And so, uh, particularly when you're playing uh, key position forward line uh, in rough and tough times and mm. rough and tough people, men. So, um, yeah, that was an interesting time and uh, I remember those times very clearly. And, uh, um, oh, well, now that well, I suppose they're all gone, uh, never forgot. Uh, a long memory of things that happened, you know, which now I now understand to be, well, if I was in their position, I'd be doing exactly what they did to me, uh, uh, I suppose, in terms of the, um, the cut and trust of it all, you know. And who helped you through those times in Nathalie? I mean, other than your family, was there someone, a mentor, or was there someone who you really admired, who assisted you? Um... That's a good question and a difficult one to answer. I had lots of people, or several people, who I looked up to as being sportsmen. Uh, and bearing in mind, I was also playing cricket 
uh, against men, and I played cricket as a 13-year-old in the men's comp when they were short. In fact, I've got a photo there of a premiership team. Uh, uh, oh, yes. Uh, in uh, when I was 12, I reckon, or 13, <laughs> and, and myself and this fellow yep. filled in when these people really didn't turn up. And then, subsequently, as we grew older and stronger, we both then played this team. That's my father. And, uh, I mean, that man, who was a very good cricketer, and who I subsequently grew to be able to play on the same football team with him at Nathalia, and on the same level with him at Yalka South Cricket Club, uh, he became a... Uh, he's become, uh, he was one of my people who I looked up to. But, you know, he's dead. Clary Brown's dead, Bob Robin's dead, he's dead, he's closed himself, he's dead, he's dead, you know, mm. he's dead, I don't know where he is, mm. and this so I went straight. So, um, that bloke, Kevin Pell, he's a mentor. My father was a mentor also, but he never came and watched me because he didn't like watching football. And uh, he saw very few games that I played, even right through into the league. At the league level. Why didn't he like watching football, do you say? Um, I suppose that's a question you have to ask him. Oh, right. <laughs> um, but I think it was to do with uh, getting too worked up. Didn't want to make a spectacle himself. Mm. Uh, uh, I think that those sorts of issues yeah. uh, and didn't want to become critical. Uh, and I think that they're issues that I have to grapple with when I go to footy too because of my profile, you know. And, um, you know, sometimes I'm a bit more expressive in some respects than my father. Not any more um, vocal. Not any, he's, he's very clever and very um, descriptive and quite articulate. Uh, but I just got to think, shit, sit down and be quiet, or you know, sit there like that. You know, so I can understand uh, him being like that too. So he. He chose not to go. Mm. Okay. I mean, uh, it, didn't worry, it didn't particularly worry me. Mm. But uh, he used to hear things anecdotally, and so we used to talk about things like that. And uh, lots of things that he, we talked about, um, I still remember and still think, you know, he was right what he told me. And lots of things he told me, told me, not only about footy, but about cricket. Uh, I still tell my boys when I play with them on, at the weekend because I play cricket and I'm captain of my cricket team and a lot of things I tell them, he told me, you know, and uh, so from that point of view, he was very much a mentor, you know, and uh, but in terms of actually giving me feedback and and uh, saying what did you do that for, well, that sort of uh, ball by ball blow or yeah. ball by ball count. Uh, that wasn't the situation at all. And so then as I got older and we were working on the farm together, I played football on Saturdays, he milked the cows, he played golf on Sundays, and I milked the cows. You know, so that's the way it went. But did he talk much about his career to you? A little bit, a little bit in snippets. Not much, yeah. not much. Um, because, uh, let's be honest, there was a t- when he started at Richmond, he, was, he could have been a superstar with the number of goals he was kicking. Well, he kicked 46 goals in the first seven or eight games or something and was leading the goal kicking in 46 by 11 or 12 goals. And uh, uh, I did enjoy reading, looking at his scrapbooks, which I learned all this from. He never told me this. Uh, but um, uh, 
he he talk about mainly about the personalities, and uh, Jack, of course, was a huge part of his uh, uh, experience in Richmond and football. Uh, as and but there are other people in football in, in uh, the Murray League, which the failure was in, which also were big, and and to which he was. In, or for which he was involved in a much longer time, you know, and uh, so, um, but there was he has never talked about much about blow by blow accounts, and that's why um, when I came to jotting down his life history, like I explained to you before, why I went to interview him, where I was able to create the environment where I could ask him all sorts of questions about what happened in this part of his life and how he met my mother and what happened in the war and anything, you know, because it's, it's, uh, you're able to set the scene and create the environment where this sort of information would come your way. But in terms of um, uh, getting the feedback at, from his football experiences, it's only when things come up that, you, that triggers the question or the thought or the comment, you know, and... Uh, uh, he's not one really to talk about himself much at all uh, of any great length, but sometimes things came up, you know. But um, I found him to be very witty. Oh, he's very great pretty. sense of humour. Oh, 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 he's one of the him and Graham Richmond, the two most gifted people I've ever met. You know, yeah. two most gifted, and uh, I say that without reservation or qualification, you know, because. Um, well, I think that's uh, an indication of just how uh, highly I rate his natural faculties, you know, and um, they're different in, in many, many ways, of course, than their gifts. And, uh, but uh, my father's wit and humour is quite unique, mm. yeah, quite unique. And the gift that Graham Richard had? Um, uh, Graham <laughs> didn't. He had, for, he, he had a very good sense of humour, Graham, but it was a different sense of humour. But Graham is very, uh, very political and very gifted politically. And um, he also was very ambitious and very relentless. And uh, he was a no-stone-unturned sort of person. Uh, and he had an amazing ability to be able to cope with lots of different issues at the one time. Amazing. And, of course, I mean... Frank is a very gifted orator as well because he's able to entwine this humour uh, and, uh, and but a very deep thinker. Graham was a, a very gifted orator in the traditional fashion, you know. Um, but, uh, look, uh, you know, uh, Frank wasn't interested, basically, in... He wasn't ambitious at all, Frank. But Graham was, you know, and so they, they were very, very, very diverse, but nevertheless, very, very talented people. I mean, my father was top of his class at school. He could play uh, tennis exceptionally well, extraordinary footballer, an even better cricketer, 
and a wonderful golfer. On top of that, he had this ability to humour. Um, he was clever at, at uh, agile in his thinking and uh, clever at figures. There was nothing he couldn't do, really. Uh, you know, and, uh, and he was an outstanding athlete. He's got records that still stand at school. You know, high jump at 13, 4 foot 8, this sort of stuff. I, I was competing in events at school that he had the record for. And, and I don't think they've ever been broken. I don't, I, well, I wouldn't be sure about that, but they lasted, well, I was 37 or something when he achieved this record. 37? Yeah. 37 or 36 or something. Here we are 60 years later. You know, as far as I know, they still stand. No. And if you travel back to Nathalia, is there Burke references on on honour boards and stuff like that? Oh yes, but there's more than one Burke. Sure. Oh, you know, there was four Burks in the same football team at Nathalia. Yeah. Right. At the one time, you yeah. know, and uh, um, they weren't related. Yeah, yes. Oh, sorry. Oh, yes. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Oh, and they were Frank's cousins. Yeah. And uh, his best friend through the Shepparton, through the Nathalia days, was Dennis Burke who was his first cousin, and they were the same age, had the same gifts, in fact, in fact good judges in the say Dennis Burke was a better footballer than Frank. But, you know, he, was, he must have been a very good player, that's what I'm saying. Uh, and they were competitors at school and friends, and so, you know, the Burke's... Old Michael Burke, the grandfather, actually selected land at Nathalia, or at west of Nathalia, in the 1880s, that means he was he applied to the government to be allocated a piece of land, and he and he was given that allocation. That's so he had to start. He had to clear it. He had to build fences. He had to build his house. He had to do whatever, cultivate it, and start a farm. You know, and he had 18 children, and uh, some of whom died. And uh, out of that came my grandfather and. Uh, my great uncle, um, who then became the two patriarchs of the Burke, uh, Nathalia Burks, uh, and then along came my father, his generation, in both families, and then along came my generation, the next generation. So um, the Burks are an institution, Nathalia, really. Yeah. And football's permeated throughout that. Oh, very much so. Oh, yeah. With your family. Oh, there's a Burke play that's in the Thalia in the Premiership side this year. Yeah. Yeah. And he's an, he's a, he's a next generation. He's, he's David's generation or equivalent of, you know. Yeah. yeah so, uh, it's extraordinary. There wasn't a Burke play in the last Premiership, I don't think. I don't think. But the... Uh, no, there wasn't. I don't think. Anyway. But certainly the, the, the Burks have played for Nathalia. Yeah. But you, you were a forward playing at Nathalia or a centre-half forward. But you didn't come to Richmond as a forward or centre-half forward, did you? Yeah. Oh, you did? Yeah. Because they, they were the only players I played yeah. up until the time. It's just that the best players played in the forward line. You know? There's no opportunity. Well, it made sense, yeah. you know. What did the group job did I say? No. Best players of the forward line and rat, rat bags to the back line. You know, that's, that's how come Mopsy went to the back line, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how did you end up at Richmond? Obviously the connection with Dyer and your father would have had an impact. In your well, Graham 
Well, Graham saw me playing when I was at Assumption, or for Assumption, I think. Matt started it. And Graham kind of jack around, basically, as yeah. the foot in the door man. And, uh, uh, but because I always bagged Richmond because of my father, um, I didn't need much talking or encouragement to run to, to come to, I, you know, well, the country wasn't zoned in those days, so you go where you like, you had to sign a Form 4, and um, it expired after two years, so you had to sign again, and, and that's what happened to Dick Clay, he signed with North Melbourne, his Form 4 expired, mm. and so I was able to sign with the Tigers. And, uh, but, Graham, uh, but in my case, uh, I didn't want to play anyone else in Richmond, and, uh, uh, but I wasn't as highly sought after as Dick Clay and other people around. Um, it was only basically Graham signing 100 to get one attitude, really, or uh, his approach um, that uh, saw me actually at Richmond. And, uh, but as I said, I was happy to go. I didn't care, really. I never thought I'd make it, really. Um, and so um, I played a couple of games with Richmond on permit in 64, 65 and 66 and uh, then came to Richmond full-time in 67. I just want to check, you didn't sign a, a Form 4 on the back of a tractor or anything while you're in the farm, was it? Oh, um, well, it was in the kitchen. Was Jack there at the, at the time? Oh, yes. Oh. And Graham? Yes. Jack didn't have his black and white TV with him, did he? So. The stories of him bringing the black and white TV just to convince the parents? Uh, no, there was none of that. No, I suspected that that had already been used up elsewhere. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and was your parents happy for you to, to go to Melbourne? I mean, there was a... Would have My mother wouldn't let me go until I was 20. So I signed as an 18-year-old in 1964 or 5, I forget now. I think it was yeah, during 64. Right. My mother wouldn't let me go until I was 20. So that's what happened. I didn't go to last time. Your father was happy for you to go? Or yeah. it was a decision oh, yeah. that well, a joint? I mean, I, I think he can foresee uh, a bit of a, um, a problem with the farm because I was home sure. working on the farm. But uh, he was certainly happy to try my luck because I don't think he thought I'd make it either. So it was basically have a look around, you know, have a go, see how you go, you know, and then uh, when all that's over, we'll come back. You know, and not that I ever left, really. It was only after I'd been playing for three years. It was in the fourth year at Richmond that I actually left the farm, stopped working on the farm, because I was covering backwards and forwards to play. And, uh, and by that time, I was established as a player, you know, and played in two premiership sides. So it was only after that that I uh, came to Melbourne to live. So in those first three years, did your week consist of training with Richmond? I mean, how, how, did, how did the actual week pan out? Because you were from Nathalia. Yeah, well, what was happening? Well, the first year I travelled down by bus on Thursday morning. Right. Train. Do you remember what bus number? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I don't know. Well, it was Nathalia. Bus that left from White's Tourist Bureau on Fenton Street. And, uh, and then um, after uh, for the first year, and train at Richmond on Thursday. Uh, and then I stayed at the Glensborough Hotel in Wellington Parade. And then on Friday I went over and worked at the ground for the day. Worked at the ground? At the footy ground, yeah. As, as assistant curator. At the footy club? Yeah. 
right? And uh, it was my first, my, Graham gave me the job, got me the job there, and the first job he gave me was, yeah, oh, I don't know what's in those days, Richmond only finished playing there in, uh, this is in 67, so they played their last game in 64. So there was Asheville terraces right around the other, and there was weeds starting to grow up. And, uh, and uh, there was Cape Weed and Docks and uh, that, um, all those weeds that grow. So it was my job, I had to start off, and I had to chip all those weeds starting around near where the squash court before the squash court was built, so it was on the end of the uh, the big old stand, yeah. right round to around the outer, uh, round to the where the terrace is finished, which was at the cricket cricket club members. Goodness. Okay, so that's what my job. I took most of the year to do it because I had it one 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 uh, one day a week, yeah. and I can remember looking at the ground on TV one day because Neville Crow did an advertisement, and it was for. I know, for all I know, because he was captain of Richmond. No, he wasn't captain anymore, but he was still a very prominent player. He did he did this ad or this interview on TV, and around on the ground and in the background, you could see the terrace half clean of weeds one way and completely overrun with weeds another way. <laughs> I was the only one who appreciated uh, what was in the background, of course. But uh, yeah, so anyway, that's digressing. But so uh, that's what I did on Fridays. On Fridays, yeah. the next year, Graham gave me a car. He was a bit slow forthcoming with the car in the first year because he wasn't sure I was going to make it either. He wasn't going to give me a car until obviously he thought that we were going to get some value from it. So I had a car for so the next year. I then instead of coming on the bus on. Um, Thursday, and going home on the bus on Saturday night or right. Sunday morning, I used to drive home after the game and drive down on Thursday for training and stay in Melbourne on the Friday. And uh, when doing the curating on the Friday, oh, no, the next year I got uh, uh, got the sack from that. And oh, Graham had me working at a hotel on one day a week. Do you remember the car that Graham got you? Very well. Can I ask what kind? It was a Holden 1964 EH. Fantastic. And the colour? Green with a white top. Now, if you're going to ask me the uh, registration, <coughs> you know, I forgot. It's all right. Okay. So he actually gave you a car? Good, gave me a car. Or you told me Ray right, right, Dunn. And so, uh, but it was a, it was a, a car that Ron Carson organised through a yeah. friend of his, yeah. who, had, and his friend was in the National Bank, mm. and he... So it was a second-hand car, mm. and it was a, one of the cars that they provided for their staff, and after they turned them over a couple of years, mm. and, you know, then it, so they'd sell them. So it was a car that this bloke and Ron knew the history of it, so it was a good car. Can you recall any players having interesting cars or cars that stick in your mind around about that time? Um, not really. I remember your dad's first car. <laughs> He won a car with Curtis Channel 7. I think it might have been in 67. Did you have a winning car yourself? No, no. And uh, I remember your dad, that, that, that car. Anyway, I remember different cars anecdotally, but not so mm. much because of... I remember Barry just driving an old Dodge or a Plymouth for a little while. 
because he was broke and stupid, so he obviously got all, was all he could afford, all that sort of stuff. Um, I remember, remember uh, Rex Hunt getting a buy a car, and uh, and the Michael Patterson's that turned out pinching the keys while he was having the training, and this is after the first night. It's brand new one he bought. He drove it down to the club, got trained, out he went to training. While we were out the training, Paddo got the keys out of the uh, the bag that, that Charlie Callum had valuables in, put the, uh, opened up the car and drove it around somewhere else where uh, Rex wouldn't see. Well, probably further around behind the gear club. Rex wouldn't see it because Rex rushed out, get his car, and it's gone. And of course, everyone was in on the know, yeah. and uh, Rex was very upset, very upset, so they didn't have the heart to. To, to string it out any longer than, uh, than what, 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 any much longer than after he came back into the rooms, but I don't remember so much. Bugsy always had the cars. Bugsy had he liked cars. He had a he had a, uh, a big V8 Falcon. Yes, white one I think it was. You know, but uh, well, Bugsy was bigger than Bottle Beer at the time. Really? So, but yeah, so he was a good car. Was he that prominent? Billy, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and, and Billy was, um, oh, well, he'd won a couple of best affairs by that stage, you know, all Australian, Victorian player. You know, he was, um, this is before, this is in during 1967, yeah. so he was uh, pretty important to us. Yeah. Uh, two questions. Who was the curator of the ground while you were the assistant? Peter Mead. Right. Yeah. And we paid much for as an assistant curator? Um, I was paid something. I can't remember how much Graham gave me now. But he used to give me some money every Friday I'd go in to his office and he'd give me some money for the pay. Yep. Give me some money to cover the bus expenses mm-hmm. and and the meals. And he, they paid the accommodation at Glensborough. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Did you ever find just the, the two things overlapping? So while you were training, you were looking at the weeds or and thinking, gee, I'm going to point them out to the players. Do you see that? That's, uh, that's a good job I've done over there. Oh, no. I think it was a bit of a joke as far as the players are concerned. I don't think I, don't think, I, don't think I had anyone uh, pushing and shoving to take the job from me. Yeah. <laughs> um, did you have a football childhood hero? Um, you may not have seen a lot of senior games while you were a kid, oh, so maybe you read it on no. the paper or on the radio. I think Roy Wright. I wrote to Roy Wright as a kid. I never saw Richmond play until I actually played for Richmond. But uh, I wrote to Roy Wright as a kid, and, and I don't know where the photo is, but he sent me back a photo of himself autographed, which I thought was fantastic. And looking back, I'm even more appreciative because... With my own life, how it's evolved, I can understand, you know, yeah. um, what trouble he went to. And um, so this was a box brownie shot or something where he, he uh, sent me this photo. Um, and that was in, that, I was in primary school when that was happening. And, uh, but I, I don't know where that photo ever, ever, um, went to, I don't know who it was, but I, I, 
I know I had the opportunity a couple of times to thank Roy and mention it to him because he could And uh, I mean, I told Graham, and he said he was very impressed too, you know. And so, so I suppose Roy Wright was um, was the man for me. Um, what was it about Roy that made you? Oh, he was Richard's best player, right? You know, and one, two Brownlows got runner-up or not beaten on a count back for a third. He was a gentle giant, so he... Yeah, and uh, he... he, I I guess that was the way it was, uh, Red. But I can remember, at Assumption as I grew older, having a photo inside my locker. In those days, he had this big barn and a bed, and your little press was called, which was a a hip-high press with your clothes in it. Uh, and uh, on the inside cover, blokes used to have photos with kids, young blokes had photos of probably shearers. I mean, we couldn't be too outlandish because the brother, you know, he would, it just wasn't on. Now, but I had a photo that came out of the 1964, 1962, sorry, Inside Football. Was it Inside Footy? It was a publication put out by the Herald Weekly Times mm-hmm. of Eden Hayden taking this strong mark in front of Bernie Massey, who was fullback from Norman. Yeah. I had that on my locker. And uh, Ian Hayden, because Roy had gone by this time, or retired, yeah. and so Ian was the current Richmond full forward. Mm. And um, so when I met him, I've only met him a couple of times, mm. but apparently he's a I suppose he still is an outstanding barrister. Mm. But I met him in the room one day and said, oh, look, I used to have a, have a photo of you up in my press at school. He said, oh, that's funny. He said, some of my kids have got your photo up in my, on, on the wall at our place. So <laughs> that was nice. His career was cut short, I think, with injury. Very good. Yeah. Injury, wasn't oh, no, Graham said he was a knob player, mm. a very good player. And they had, and they would have liked to have played him to half back, but his knee right. backed up, I think. I think um, he was a very good player, apparently, Graham said. Yeah. Um, I was speaking to Blair Campbell. Oh, OK. He said that Ian Hayden would have been a, a sensational player mm. if, if his career had been injury-free. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Injury. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, well, you know, anecdotally, that just backs up what Graham's saying. Yeah. But uh, I remember Blair Campbell very well when I first came to Richmond, too. He is a... Do you try to teach you how to kick a banana kick? On a sideway? No. No. That only came later, I think. My best memory of Blair kicking his uh, aeroplane kick was more to... in the later 60s. Not the middle 60s when I first started to knock around where I played a couple of practice games and I actually played some reserves games with Blair. I mean, he was very good to me, very nice to me, but he was a standard... Well, he's playing on the ball in those days. Mm. That's the other thing, of course, mm. playing on the ball. Mm. It was only later that he got up, the, up close to the goals and became the specialist uh, sneak forward, yeah. like he did with this deadly, uh, unbelievable way of kicking goals, you know. And um, But uh, he was just a, a pretty good player, and, but, it's, but, a, but a lovely kick mm. in, in the orthodox, um, uh, orthodox fashion. What was your reliable kick? My most reliable. Yeah, but what would you use as often? 
Oh. <laughs> you see footage of yeah. you know, grand finals kicking, I suppose, drop drop kicks. Yes. Uh, well, I was I kicked a lot of drop kicks until I hurt my knee, and then I lost the the timing coming back um, after my knee, which was term was created by not wanting to, to subject my knee to the mm. crunch that the kicking mm. uh, actually causes. I mean, you've only got to have a sore ankle or a sore knee to understand just what strain on your limbs, yeah. kicking, or your joints, kicking causes. And uh, so uh, I never kicked another drop kick after I hurt my knee. But at, at, at the time, I, I always kick a lot of torps and a lot of drop kicks and... Uh, and then I kicked drop punts, basically, uh, for most of my, the rest of my career. In fact, all drop punts. Um, but uh, I, was, I, was, I was without wanting to sound I've got tickets on myself, so I think I've an OK kick. Yeah. How did you hit your knee? Running backwards with the flight of the ball, trying to get to Bob Hurd, who I knew was standing three metres or five metres behind me, at Victoria Park. Fell on a heap at his feet, took the mark, kicked the goal. That cut me off a stretcher. <laughs> For those who didn't see you play, I didn't see you play. Can you describe to me your style of play? For those who, who look back at this interview, how would Francis Berg describe Francis Berg as a player? Gee, I don't know. I didn't watch myself. You know, uh, oh. I was determined, I suppose. Determined. Uh, I think I had a good understanding or a good instinct um, for the game. Uh, I think... Uh, oh, well, I thought I was quite stylish, but when I look at the TV, uh, I realised that Perhaps I wasn't quite uh, stylish as what I thought. Uh, it's just amazing how you picture yourself. Uh, and then it's when you see yourself on a TV or a video uh, picture. You know. But, uh, uh, um, oh, no, I, was, I, certainly, I certainly was motivated. Um, uh, it was important to me to play and play well. Um, yeah, those sort of things. Hello? What is the time? Out of interest. Quarter past eight. All right. Okay. Won't take up too much longer. No, uh, no, no. I'll talk about the tape. I'll go to 90 minutes. <laughs> oh, I don't think I'm going to watch. White two sugar sacks, please. So, uh, I was actually going to ask what part of your your football would be. What, what was, did you have any weaknesses? Oh, oh, yeah, but don't. Yeah. I've kept it a secret. I've tried to anyway. And don't tell my kids, will you? <laughs> I've always told them that uh, uh, when I broke my leg at Glenfree Road, I actually broke it on the Thursday night before the game and played on the Saturday with it. And uh, just to uh, well, enhance uh, the the uh, what's the myth? Yeah. The myth. But so uh, I'm. Uh, Oh no! I think I had uh, I think I had more weaknesses than what people realised, and I tried to keep it pretty quiet. And I think if people had known that 
that I had, the weakness I had, um, they might have been surprised. Yes. Put that way, or, you know, it, it might sound a bit of an obscure way of describing it, but um, I think that, uh, I mean, battle for confidence, mm. battle for self-belief, battle for um, um, the motivation, they are all things that can that vary from one minute to the next yeah. and week to the, one week to the, to the next and one year to the next and uh, I think that uh, those were issues that I had to never take for granted and I don't know whether that's any different than anyone else but I never regarded myself as being a, a particularly gifted player um, but I just couldn't believe my luck I suppose that the ball came to me when it did you know, and uh, so um, I think as I, and particularly when I was quicker, as I got older and got slower, um, I really had to um, minimise the opportunities for exploitation in, in that, those parts of the game that I, that I had deficiencies in, and uh, so, and maximise my strengths. And so, yeah, I think everyone's got weaknesses, but I think that those issues were, it could be described as weaknesses. Yeah. And you were talking about myths before. Can you can you clear up for me? Thank you very much. Can you clear up for me exactly in respect to to breaking the bone in your leg? How that happened, and the stories have been that you you played a game with a broken leg. Was that, did I explain that first? Was that on a tape? Was that before I, the, where I heard break my leg on a Thursday night? So I oh, yes, that's, a, that's on the tape. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can erase it if you want. <laughs> we'll send out two versions. Yeah. But, uh, no, it's actually, I had a very funny session on on um, uh, a show with your dad. Grumpy old men talking yes. about it too. And... Uh, so uh, my cover was blown completely on that. But uh, the, the, the short story of it all was that I broke um, a fibula bone in my left leg, which was not a weight-bearing bone, with that, but that was sufficiently serious to uh, have me come off the ground. And um, at the time, I didn't know it was broken. I just knew I heard this crack uh, as I slipped to dodge an oncoming Hawthorne player, had the ball, and as I put my foot out mm. to go that way, mm. my foot slipped and uh, had this crack and I fell over and, and basically tried to see if it would come good, but it didn't. So then um, I basically walked off the ground and it, was, it happened at the other, at the top end of the swimming pool end of Glenfree Road, the ground and our rooms were behind the goals at the other end, so then I just walked off the ground. And at the time, um, it was sore, but it was it was something that I could do. It was later, only later to cool down that, that I knew that I couldn't walk anymore, you know. So, but at the time, it, I was given some, uh, how would you describe uh, Kudos for being tough about walking off the ground with a broken leg. Well, technically I was, but the reality was that it 
was just like a, a saw this or saw that, you know, at the time. And uh, I was able to walk, so I did, you know. I knew I couldn't play anymore, so I came off. Mm. How, long, how long did it keep you out of the game? About nine weeks, eight weeks, yeah. yeah. So, uh, mm. And the way to treat that back then, we didn't have that much advanced technology. What was the... Oh, it was put a plaster, yep. you know. And, um, in fact, uh, yeah, so I spent, I think, about six weeks in plaster, maybe six weeks. Six weeks? Six weeks. And the day I got the plaster off my leg was the first day I took Kerry out. <laughs> Wasn't it, Kerry? Great timing, Kerry. Yeah. Excellent timing. And so uh, that was an unusual story but, uh, in itself. But the, the day I got the plaster out, I picked Kerry up at her place at Shepherd or Kingupner, and then we went up to uh, the Yarraweer Town Hall, the Yarraweer Hall, for a dance. Yeah, a dance. Mm. Um, did you ever have, when you then continued your career, was there ever was the thought in your mind about the knee? Oh, sorry, about the leg. The, no, no, because I knew once it again. healed, once it healed, yeah. you know, the, the collar, the, the, it had healed. Yeah. No, that was it. It was a bit sore for a while, mm. you know, after I got it back. Um, and it probably took a couple of years before the soreness went. But it was fine, you know, and there was never any trouble. Some people say that that was the start of me not being as quick. Yeah. Uh, Do you that? I'm not sure. No, I think the knee injury had more to do with that. My de- my decline in, in pace. My knee was... But, see, I was only 22 when this happened. You know, so I was still... I think I played my best footy of 24, 25, 26, really. Um, I was going to ask you best, what you thought your best season was, personally. The best season individually was in 1970 when I played in the wing. Individually, uh, that was the best year. One of the best players, easily. Um, Everything just seemed to gel that year for you? Yeah. yeah. It was my first year down living in Melbourne and playing and training. Um, but I think I had more valuable seasons for Richmond subsequently because I moved to the back line, started to play on players who were more important and integral to the opposition's uh, prospects of win the game. So more responsibility, more pressure, that sort of stuff, uh, which made me uh, a more important player to the Tigers as such. Um, even though uh, on the wing I had a physical advantage over a lot of players, I suppose. Uh, and from an individual point of view, that was my best year. Um, I, as I said, I think I had more important roles to play uh, in subsequent years. I don't know if this is a myth or whether it's something that over time has slightly been exaggerated, but each week, was the lineup Bird, Barrett and Clay? Uh, oh, for a lot of weeks it was, yeah. Yeah, particularly early. Right. And Because um, it's become such an integral symbol. Well... Well, of course, we never got beaten ever. We were all, it was always Barrett, Burke and Clay, best, best on the ground, second best on the ground, third best on the ground. It was only a matter of who came first, second and third. And, um, you know, we just steamrolled the opposition week after week after week, year in, year out. And that has been really perpetuated by Tommy Hayford. Right. He's been the winners. 
the most singular one who's well, the only one. He started all roles, really. And so it suited the club and the marketing yes, and all that stuff, right. you know. So, uh, but I think, in all, I would have played about 100 games on the wing. Right. But the times we actually played together as a line is substantial. That's why I came. <laughs> I knew there was going to be a fruit cut. <laughs> Sorry. All right. We're, we're, we're on roll. We're, we're, in, we're, in we're in the home stretch. Well, that's no, it's good. As, as I was saying, <clears throat> I think about, I would have played give or take 100 games on the wing about. And all those times, you know, um, I think uh, I think the actual figure is about 31 times or something like that where we were picked in that line. And uh, when I told Tommy Opie, he said, well, shoot the bloke who found that out. <laughs> I've seen footage of you playing a game where you've got a bloody die mm-hmm. and you've been moved down to full four. Mm-hmm. Do you recall that, though? Mm-hmm. Can you just tell me a little bit more about that? Oh, uh, well, that once, excuse me, sorry. that once again is a bit of a, a situation uh, that looked actually a bit worse than what it was, right. you know, and... Uh, yeah, sure, I got a cut when Greg Shaw and I collided. And, uh, yeah. And, um, uh, <coughs> he got me a beauty. But we were both going in different directions at the ball, you know, and, uh, we were expecting the other to give way to each other, I think. And, uh, anyway, I came off second best. What was this at? North Melbourne. Right. Up to there. So that, did they move you down? Mm. And, uh, so I kicked a goal. And sort of the rest is history, so to speak, you know, and with all its uh, embellishments and uh, heroics that have been attached subsequently. So, uh, what did I mean on on the on the tape? It looks as though you can't actually see out of that eye. Well, it was a nuisance while it bled, yeah, and uh, and because I couldn't see properly, mm. and so and and it was crimson and mm. colour TV and all that stuff, you know, it's the yellow, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just a few more questions. No worries. Yeah. In 1972, mm-hmm. you played in the losing grand final as a player. Mm-hmm. And in 82, you played in the losing grand final as a coach. Mm-hmm. So how did those two losses differ? One as a player and one as a coach? Mm-hmm. Well, that's not a good question. Um, they were both different. Um, both devastating, mm. um, but um, I think of the two, uh, the 982 one was the more difficult for me personally because I felt so responsible. You know, and uh, there were issues that, that came up, you think, well, she was manifested this way or that way, or inevitably there's going to be issues that come up, and I understand that when you're responsible for a whole group of people. And whereas in 72, I was responsible for myself and uh, and accountable to the team for my own performance. And whereas in uh, 82, I was accountable and responsible to the whole Richmond club, incorporating its supporters, the rest of the, the committee and all that. So. It was a much bigger cross to bear, I suppose, and one that really I've never 
in a way, I never got over, I, I think. In, uh, but what I suppose you do as you get older, you learn to put these things in perspective. And so I've been able to do that. But uh, at the time, uh, and subsequently, um, it's a period of intense disappointment for me. I mean, was it still on your mind going into the next season? Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And some of that spurred you on probably even more? Um, oh. Motivation for me was never, never a problem. Um, you know, some people probably could argue that I was more... more um, Stricter, um, probably, or might have been affected in that way, which yeah. is a reflection on me, um, which I'd, I would probably plead guilty to. Um, I think that uh, I saw the 82 grand finals and opportunity lost, and for my 72 experience, I knew that we certainly were never going to get the opportunity to reverse that again, and it was gone. You know, so. And who knows what what's going to happen in the future, sort of thing. In the 72 situation, I mean, it was mollified to some, to a large extent by 73 and 74. So we got sort of comparatively immediate pain relief. But in 82, there was no such panacea around, you know. So I think that's, uh, <laughs> well, that's just the way things work out. But, but these all added to why uh, 82 was probably... Well, it is the most disappointing yeah. part of my um, footy life. But then you went one more year, mm-hmm. which in fact was Kevin's last year. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> could he have gone on again, do you think? Um, you probably, probably wasn't the greatest trainer. No. <laughs> um, I've read where he said that one of the reasons why we retired was because the training had become tougher right. and it had. And and I made it tougher, I think, and my advisors made it tougher. But and I think in Kevin's case, I should have given him some preferential treatment. This is in hindsight. Yeah. And I think that was a mistake on my part. Whether he could have gone on, look, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I've got a huge respect for your dad's own determination and will. Um, he, he certainly was still quick. He certainly uh, was therefore a threat. Uh, I think he was finding it harder um, to come up each week, as you do when you grow older. I talk about physically. Um, and I think that um, at 37... Um, maybe he could have. He might have been encouraged to go another year if uh, I'd have been a bit easier on him in particular uh, in terms of his training regime. But uh, he had decided to retire uh, before the 83 season finished anyway. And so uh, I think that uh, basically... He knew best. So he came and told you that? I mean, 
I can remember your dad saying to me after the game, we were talking about, because Robert Walsh's coach, Fitzroy, he just introduced the huddle at the kickouts. And your dad was saying, after the game, as we were talking, that uh, how difficult it was to co- cope with that and to counter it, you know, as a player. Yeah, so, uh, uh, yeah, so... Did you incorporate that then? No, no, no. Um, uh, no, I didn't worry about it, mm. uh, which perhaps I should have. I, I mean, I, I think that uh, huddles matter great, but until someone keeps a stat as to how many goals it costs, as against how many goals it actually produced, well, I'm, I'll, I'll then assess on whether it's worth the bloody trouble. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, you know, so I, I just reckon it's cost Richard more goals over the year than what's ever created. And uh, but at the time, uh, to be honest with you, uh, and as it's turned out, I just never had the time with the players to be able to develop those strategies. And Walls apparently had developed this with the players during the off season when he when he made time. When you get into the season. You're too worried about the winning from one week to the next, to the next, next to uh, really uh, get too far away uh, from those. And in those days, of course, it was all the players had jobs uh, to get too far away from going about the business of preparing for the Saturday, this coming Saturday. Mm-hmm. So, um, but it was. I, I remember that quite uh, specifically, and also that chap, yes. Kevin Pell, yes. came down to watch that game. Well, the first game was coached at AFL Park and saw him before the game, which is lovely. Yeah. I had three more questions. Yep. And then I'll stop there. Why coach Richmond after you play as a player? Uh, why not? Okay. No, not, and, and, and it really is as simple as that. Uh, I didn't think I would get the opportunity to coach Richmond anyway. Yeah. I thought, well... I might not ever get this opportunity again, um, so I took the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair enough. Um, it's a difficult question to answer, but is do you, are you able to pinpoint one or two plays of your era for Richmond who you thought were great contributors on the field? Not. It's probably impossible to, to choose a best player. Oh yeah, well Kevin, Kevin Bartlett and Royce Hart, the two best players for sure, for sure, no question. Um, they were superstars in their own right, and and were consistently, uh, you know, in top, in tough, targeted uh, counter uh, counter tactic or overcame all that. Mm. You know? In top teams, matches of the day, finals, all that, or any qualification you want to uh, assess them by. Uh, and <clears throat> uh, so, I suppose the player I most admired was Roger Dean, I guess. Um, and he had such a, an impact uh, as a player. I mean, I was aware growing up that Roger was uh, a bit of a, a cheeky sort of a player. Uh, 
I was aware that Ron, Ron Bresser got rubbed out of the building in the last game of the year and missed the finals because of him or something, situation like that. This is before I came on the scene. Yeah. Uh, uh, and Roger, I was aware Roger's a pretty good player. But when I got to Richmond, uh, I saw just how good he was, you know, and uh, he played my first year there, he played back pocket. And... Uh, and I also saw how small he was. You know, but Roger could mark with the with the big players for his size. You know, he was and strong and you know up there. And he as a as a back pocket player, his racket was cutting across the lead of the full forward and going clunk. You know, uh, just taking his running almost. You know, and uh, uh, and uh, I can remember in in nineteen he took a spectacular mark just jumping on someone's back and up there, you know, was anyone who cared a name in terms of the acknowledged aerialists uh, of the time. But he's only five foot eight, eight, eight and a half, you know, and tough. Now, he was tough, you know, in, in any definition. And uh, I can remember, and I've told the story publicly before, in the 1969 grand final, Roger had running down the ground, bouncing the ball, heading towards our goal, and Kevin Hall coming at him, six foot two and about 14 stone, and Roger timing his getting the kick away so late that Hall was always going to collide with him so that he got the penalty kick down the ground. Now, that's that's real tough. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, but he, he, he was genuinely tough, you know, and he was such, you know, he's quite well built, but he was only a little fella, you know, and... Uh, and he was on top of that. He was such a nice guy. Well, he's such a nice man. You know? So, uh, you know, and, and um, so I, I think that uh, from the point, and he, and, he, and he continued on longer than the others of that era. I mean, Paddy had retired by uh, 68. Freddie had gone after 67. Paddo went to coach Norwood in uh, 70. Um, Bull had gone to South Melbourne. Um, who else was there? No, well, no, Tony would... I don't regard Tony being necessarily part of that era, but these were the these were the core players. Oh, Crowey retired. Um, but Roger actually was still a good player. Captain 69, who played for 72, I think it was, uh, and went out as captain of the Richmond Premiership team as Richmond Seconds. Uh, and... He got full marks from me for doing that, you know, and uh, so this just added to all the reasons why I like Roger, I suppose, and uh, and admire him, and because uh, he, because for Roger it was, you know, it was it was win at all costs, you know, and uh, and it was at his own costs too, you know, if it came to that, and uh, so uh, uh, I mean, look, there are other tough players around too. Don't get me wrong, but Roger was so impressive. So impressive, and we were able to get to know him better as he got older and stayed longer, and as we sort of grew up uh, and knew him better than the others. The others were married and had family. They were a different generational stage with us. And Roger had his family as well, but he was a little bit younger than the others, and uh, so we knocked around. We had more time with Roger than the others too, I suppose. Yeah. I like to end the interview a bit differently. 
I always give the person who I'm interviewing a chance to say whatever they like. Oh. that I haven't touched on or comment about their career or motto that they used in life when they played or some sort of creed that they did by as an opportunity to, to, to say to anyone who may listen to this this interview oh, okay. decades down the track, oh, 100 a, years' time. That's a bit deep. <laughs> you don't have to be deep. I think Frank said some whimsical, witty, yeah. sarcastic comments. That'd be right. That'd be right. <laughs> Other people have quoted Percy Page and people like that. Oh, Do you have anything... That you wish to? Uh, oh, no. I think I was born lucky and in the right place at the right time. That's yeah. a nice way to yeah. uh, Red's given us a tape of Frank's interview. Uh